Let's go to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2 this morning. And as we return there, we are in the second of three messages that we've called Emptied to Exalted. And last week, if you weren't with us, we began to consider the emptying of Christ and what that entailed. And our objective today is just to consider one verse of Scripture, verse 8, and reminding ourselves as we look at this that Paul is using this passage for believers as an example to us. He's saying, he said to us in verse 5, think this way, have this mind among yourselves. And, and so if you're here and you're in Christ this morning, this, this, this word that we have here is for you to consider this morning and adopt that way of thinking. But I think it's also important, though, especially during this Christmas season and why I've chosen this passage, that as we consider, as we truly think through what, what is happening here with the birth of Christ and all that's going on there, and it's one of those situations where, where we have a visual in our minds of what we see happening you know, this, this, this poor couple showing up in Bethlehem, being turned away from, from a place to stay, going out into a stable, having a baby. We see all these mental images. We can picture that. We have nativity scenes that show it for us. But it's one of these things where if we get so focused on that visual part of it, we miss out what's really happening. What's really happening here. And, and I like how C.S. Lewis put it when he was writing about this. He said this, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than the whole world itself. I like that. Once, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than the whole world itself. And I like that because it beautifully pictures what's taking place here. What's taking place here is God is stepping out of heaven, taking on the form of creation, and coming and intervening in what's taking place here on earth, and doing it in such a way that it is going to radically alter all of human history. And so, as we think about that, my prayer has been this week that as you consider the extent of how Christ emptied himself, and we're going to even go further in terms of the emptying now this morning, as we consider how far he emptied himself, that, that you and I will just be blown away. That's a good theological term, by the way. Blown away. Blown away by the humility of Christ, the act of obedience that he performed, and, and, and the results of it. So let's look at the text this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 this morning. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think this way, basically. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we consider your word this morning, we understand this, 
that you tell us elsewhere in your word that the, the entrance of your words, the, the coming into our hearts of your words gives light. And we live in a very dark world. And, and because we live in a dark world and because many times we are dark-hearted people, we desperately need light this morning. We need the light of your word. But we also understand this, Father, that because we live in a dark world, it kind of dulls our reality. It, it dulls our sight. And so, Spirit, I pray that you would come and bring these words alive in our hearts this morning. I pray that as we consider the, the work of Christ, that our hearts would be rekindled with love for him. For those in this room that, that have never truly adequately considered the work of Christ, may today be the day they do that and respond in faith to the work of Jesus, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we began to unpack the emptying of Christ, but, but we didn't get to the full extent, if you will, of emptiness, if I can put it that way. Because as Paul builds on this, verse 8, he continues, he's continuing this thought of being emptied, and, and he says in verse 8, and being found in human form. The New American Standard puts it this way, he, he was in appearance as a man. And, and what, what Paul is driving at, what the Spirit's driving at is, is, is how many of you have seen depictions of Christ, artists have depicted Christ, and it was pretty famous in, in Catholic art where Christ was always with a halo. Familiar with that? This verse is the anti those pictures. The, he, he, there was nothing about him that anybody would say he's divine in terms of his appearance. There was nothing about him that, that, that people would look at him and say, this one's different than the rest of us. No. He, he was in appearance as a man. He was recognized. He was acknowledged as a man. In fact, most people that interacted with him only saw him as a man. And that was the tragedy. They didn't see him for who he really was. He was the God-man. They didn't acknowledge his divinity. And I want you to think about this. He, he, he is in the form of a human being. He is very much a human being. He is a tiny baby that, that has to be cared for like any other baby. This wasn't a miracle baby. He didn't change his own diapers. He didn't feed himself. He came dependent on a mother and on a father to take care of him. And yet, while you're considering that, keep your finger here and go with me to the, just a couple pages towards the back of your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Because while he is this very tiny, fragile, human baby, at the same time, he's exactly what God tells us he is in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Keep going. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. He's the only baby laying in a manger that knew the DNA of all the animals all around him. He knew what was going on in his parents' minds. Think about that. He, 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 is, he is, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He was the only baby who has ever been made that was aware of everything that was going on around him in terms of, of what's happening in the spiritual realm. You think about it. We're pretty much clueless about what's happening in the same room we're sitting in, Right? 
And then it says in verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's talking about Jesus. Think about this. This baby that's laying in the manger is literally holding the universe together. And we get excited when a little tiny infant will hold our finger, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> that, that we're like, oh my goodness, it's squeezing my finger. He, he's not just squeezing fingers, he's holding the whole universe together. Back to Philippians chapter 2. So he's found in human form. And as I said, many, most didn't recognize his divinity. How do I know that? Well, because Isaiah talks about this. Just let me read to you some verses from Isaiah 53. For he grew up, talking about Christ, and this is a prophecy about him. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Quite honestly, he looked like every other baby, and all babies look like Winston Churchill. My own, our own babies, they look like Winston Churchill. My grandbabies, they look like Winston Churchill. They're the cutest Winston Churchills you'll ever see, but they look like Winston Churchill. There was nothing about him. And as a man, as he grew up as a boy, he wasn't like, oh my goodness, this is like Zac Efron in the flesh. That was for the younger people. The older people in the room are like, who is he talking about? Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Not only was he a man who, who, who just was an average, ordinary-looking guy, he was an outcast. You think about the ministry of Christ here on this earth. He wasn't wealthy, so he didn't have privilege for people to like him. He, he, he didn't come from the right family. He didn't even come from the right geographic area of Israel for people to like him. He came from Nazareth which was pretty much just a byroad, and people from Nazareth were discounted all throughout all of Israel. There's nothing about him that distincts him at all, and yet here he is, God in the flesh. Why is that so important? Well, because Isaiah would prophesy and say, he's acquainted with grief. How many of you experience grief? How many of you experience sorrow? How many of you experience rejection? How many of you know what it's like to be an outcast? How many of you understand disappointment? How many of you understand that you're just ordinary and you'll never be anything but just ordinary? That's who Jesus was as a man when he came on this earth. John, when he writes about this in John chapter 1, says this. He, Jesus, came to his own. He came to his own people. And you remember the next words that he writes? His own didn't even receive him. They rejected him. In fact, when you think about it, at his trial, he didn't even get the basic human rights that other people of his time got. That's how rejected he was. And when you think about that, think about this. Go back to Philippians chapter 2, and it says this, he's found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know this as a reality. 
And I know it all too well. My wife and I were, were going through, and I think I counted up in the past calendar year, I think I've been a part of 12 funerals. It's the most ever in my ministry here. Would you people start taking better care of yourselves? <laughs> What's the reality for all of us? It's an inevitability. We're going to die, right? Jesus is the only person who was born for the purpose of dying. And it wasn't an inevitability. He willingly laid down his life. You and I are all born and we will die. He was born with an appointment to die. He was born knowing what his mission was. Notice how Paul refers to it, by becoming obedient to the point of death. It wasn't that he succumbed to death. It wasn't that death came up and surprised him. It wasn't that one day, uh, you know, they finally got so upset with him that they finally trumped up charges and they, and they got him to the point of death. No, Christ voluntarily, willingly became obedient to death. And if we only see Jesus in a manger as this cute little baby, and we don't see him as, as a man who lives a perfect life, grows up, and voluntarily submits himself to death, then we're missing the point of Christmas. Death is an inevitability, as I said, for us. For him, it was an act of obedience. Turn with me to John chapter 1. I want you to see this. Jesus in his own words. John chapter 1. In John chapter 10 and verse 11, this is what Jesus says about himself. I am the good shepherd. Not just any shepherd, I'm a good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for his sheep. The good shepherd doesn't accidentally get killed by robbers or accidentally get killed by wolves or whatever is out there trying to, to, to harm. The good shepherd voluntarily goes in, takes on the enemies, and lays down his life for the sheep. If you move forward in that chapter, go down to verse 18. In case they didn't understand what he said, he reiterates it in verse 18. I like this. No one... Well, verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. We learn something else about Jesus here. Not only will he willingly lay down his life, he's the only man who's ever been born who can of his own accord take his life back up and raise himself back up. And he says in verse 18, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. Here's the reality. You and I are going to die, and once we die, we have no ability to get ourselves out of the coffin. I've done a lot of funerals. I can honestly tell you I've never seen a body come out of the coffin. They stay in the coffin. Why? Because none of us has the authority to pick up our life again. The only one man, Jesus did. But remember, as we think about the words back in Philippians chapter 2, remember 
the words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane because it says here he, he became obedient to the point of death. Remember what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was praying to the Father. He's like, Father, if you will, let the cup, let this cup of death, this cup of suffering, the cup of your wrath that's about to be poured on me, let it pass from me. But then remember those next words, nevertheless, not your will or not my will, but what? Your will. There's a lesson in there for us. We talked about this last week, about just the complexity of the Trinity, that God the Father is not God the Son, is not God the Holy Spirit. They're they're three distinct persons, yet they're one God, and at this point we're all confused, right? But not only that, they're co-equal as God, yet there is a submission there to the will of God. Even though Jesus has every prerogative as God himself, to, to make his own decisions, right? And act autonomously. He submits himself to the Father's authority. How often do you and I assert our rights? It's easy to do, isn't it? We're Americans. That's, I mean, we have a Bill of Rights, right? And how often do we assert our rights when God probably is asking us, no, humble yourself, submit? And the ultimate example of that is Jesus as he submits himself to the will of the Father, being fully God, and he lays down his life. This is not just any death, though, and Paul notes it. He says, even a cross death, even death on a cross. Can I put it this way? To the normal Jew, This was scandalous. This was scandalous. It's one thing to die. It's one thing to even be put to death. But to be put to death on a cross, this flies in the face of, of every believing, understanding Jew who is trusting in the law for their salvation. You say, why? Why do you say that? Well, Because not only is crucifixion the most cruel, painful, shameful form of death that mankind has ever come up with, to the Jew, according to Moses' law, it carried a special weight. And I want you to see it. Go with me back to the the book of Deuteronomy. I'm making you turn all over your Bible this morning. It's because I want to keep you awake. You've had donuts. Some of you are already looking like you're in a sugar coma right now. Deuteronomy chapter 21, this is God's law that that he gives to his people Israel, right? And as Moses is recording this law for the second time in the book of Deuteronomy, as as he's reiterating this law again, this is is what he says in, in chapter 21 in verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, you'll hang him on a tree. Hanging. The idea of hanging him. But his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. This is so cool. And I don't want you to miss this. Like, what's so cool that a man would be cursed by hanging on a tree? Because if a man isn't cursed for hanging on a tree, then Jesus being hanged on a cross means nothing for you and I. And here's why. Keep that in mind. Go with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, 
Because centuries later, Paul, Paul gets to reveal this mystery as to why it's so important that Jesus had to die on a cross. It's not just enough that Jesus would come, lay down his life, maybe get murdered by somebody or something in some other way. It had to be a cross death. Why? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ, Jesus, the one who, who was born and put in a manger, that one. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. And then he says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, who is hanged on a tree. Do you understand the significance of the cross death? You and I are all under the curse of the law because we can't keep it. I'm going to give you a little quiz. How many of you broke the law this week? I'm not talking about even driving laws. How many of you broke God's law this week? Every single one of us did. And because we broke God's law, God has every right, and this is what he says, you're not holy like I'm holy. You have violated my law. You're cursed. Ouch. Every single one of us is under the curse of the law. On top of that, we're born with the curse on us because our parents were cursed, right? Somebody has to take the curse for us. Well, guess who did it? Jesus. Not only did he take the full wrath of God, the full punishment of God, he took the curse on himself so that he could have the wrath of God poured out on him. And what made him cursed? The fact that he was hung on a tree, hung on a cross. You see, you can't think about Christmas without thinking about Resurrection Sunday that's coming. You can't think about Christmas Day without thinking about Good Friday and all that was entailed there and all that happened there. Scandalous to think about it. But the whole end, if you will, of the humiliation of Jesus, the lowering of Jesus is this, is that he would become a curse for you and for me. Now, when you think about trying to practically apply that, because this is written to believers to have humility, when was the last time you were willing to be inconvenienced, much less become a curse for somebody? We're creatures of comfort, are we not? Somebody needs to inconvenience themselves for me, right? Jesus went through the ultimate inconvenience so that you and I might receive life. Not just any life, abundant life. So he came and he lived a perfect sinless life. He willingly, as we saw, voluntarily laid down his life. He became a curse for us. He bore the wrath of God in order that you and I might be redeemed, that we might be bought back from the slave market of sin. Which makes the Christmas story just so amazing. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. I love how Matthew builds the Christmas story. I know it's the Holy Spirit, but Matthew, Matthew's, the way he does it, and the way through the Holy Spirit is just a beautiful way. So verse 18 
Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. He puts the most important detail about the birth of Christ in verse 18 here, and he basically says this, Mary and Joseph were engaged, they were not married yet, they, they did not live together, they had not had sex together, she was still a virgin, and all of a sudden she's pregnant. Now we know the rest of the details from Luke, don't we? Luke tells us that, that, that because of the Holy Spirit's work in her, she is now pregnant. And I just got to comment on something here that has just been eating me up since I read it. Do you know there's a common teaching going around here that God violated Mary in impregnating her? That ought to anger you. That's from the pit of hell. God did not violate Mary at all. God did a miraculous thing in Mary. You read Mary's song of praise. She doesn't sound like a woman who's been violated, does she? You hear people talking that way, you shut it down, just the same way that they tore down the satanic uh, temple in Iowa this week. Wasn't that cool? You tear down those kinds of falsehoods. Don't stand for that. So we have this amazing conception, don't we, in verse 18. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He was just going to write her the bill of divorce. He wasn't going to say anything about it. He was just going to move on, right? Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, imagine having an angel, not, not the sweet angel that you have in your nativity scenes, but what a real angel looks like, this fearsome being show up where you are. If you're not freaked out by that already, then get freaked out by what he says. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid to enter into this scandal. Don't be afraid for people to assume that you're the father. Isn't that what he's saying? Don't be afraid of that. Oh, and by the way, the baby in her didn't come from another man, so stop worrying about that. God himself caused her to be pregnant. Whoa. And then he goes on. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God clearly communicated his intention in sending Christ that first Christmas. He clearly articulated it to Joseph. He, he's here on a mission. Call his name Jesus, which in, in, in their tongue meant Jehovah is salvation, or you could just shorten it and say this, Savior. Call him Savior. And as Joseph is listening, I gotta believe, even though He's just a blue-collar guy. He's just a carpenter. i got to believe, because, he, because he's a Jewish boy, and he's been trained, and he goes, he goes to the synagogue weekly, and, and he does all these things, and, and all, the, all the prophets have been, you know, have been prophesying, and they've been telling, and it's been spoken over and over. There's a Messiah coming. He's got to begin to wonder, is this it? Is this it? And notice what Matthew writes. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had already spoken by the prophet. Behold, this is the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, our world is so screwed up. You and I are so screwed up because of sin that that only God can save us. (laughs) Right? Can't save ourselves. Government can't save us. Good works can't save us. Money can't save us. Family can't save us. Only God can save us. And to save us, He had to come be with us. But I love, like I said, how Matthew sets this up. Because in verse 21, as the angel is talking, he says this, He will save His people from their sins. Go to the beginning of the chapter. Who are his people? How many of you have people? I got people, and it just seems to be growing. I got people. Okay? I got people. Who are his people? Well, Matthew has told us who some of his people are here in the genealogy of Jesus. What, what kind of people need saving? Well, the very kind of people that you find in the genealogy here of Jesus. Just if we focus, and we devote just for a few minutes, focus on just the women, and by the way, to include a woman in a genealogy, that was unthought of during this time. Right or wrong, just remember this, women. During this time, women were not considered worthy to be put in genealogies. Like, that doesn't seem fair, does it? You do all the work right? Let's just call it what it is. But to put a woman in a genealogy, that was, that, was, that was interesting in and of itself. But the women that he chooses to put in this genealogy are even more interesting. For instance, go look at verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by dun 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 Tamar. Hasn't been that long. We were in the book of Genesis, right? Genesis 38. That's just a gross story, is it not? Church, is that not a gross story? Let me remind you of the story, okay? Some of you are like, what's the story? Well, well, Judah has a son, right? And his oldest son marries Tamar, and he dies before, before they can have children, and so, based on their customs, because, because she was married to the oldest son, and to carry on Judah's line, she marries the next older brother, who's Onan, and he's wicked, and God kills him. She's over two. Judah has a younger son, and he's like, I see where this is going. She's not marrying him. I don't want to lose another son. Can you blame him from a human perspective? There's something wrong with that woman, right? Every in-law knows it, right? Something wrong with that woman, right? So he makes this verbal promise to give the third son to her, but he doesn't deliver on it. So she takes matters into her own hands. You remember what she does? 
She dresses up like a prostitute, and she just happens to be where she knows Judah will be, and she absolutely lies and connives to get her father-in-law to sleep with her, and she has become pregnant because of it. Go ahead. You're thinking it. It's gross, right? You know what it tells me? That there's salvation for the deceptive and the sexually impure. Aren't you so glad? There's salvation for the deceptive and the sexually impure. There's, there's salvation for children who've been born in difficult situations like those twin boys were born in. There's salvation for them. Continue on. You don't have to go, but two more verses. You got some names in verse four that are really hard to pronounce. Ram, Abinadadab, and blah, 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 and Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by. Come on here, Matthew, what are you doing? You are picking the worst from our history. No, like Rahab has a really good side to her, right? She's the one who, who keeps the two spies safe, right? But what was her occupation, church? Some of you are afraid to say it. Go ahead, say it. What is she? If you want to put it, she's a woman of the night, Pastor Dan. The second woman mentioned is also a prostitute. And she's in the line of Jesus. She's in the line of King David. She's in the line of all these amazing people. Keep going. Verse 5. And Jesse, the father of David. Or no, verse 5. Keep going. Oh, sorry. It, by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by who? Ruth. Oh, Ruth is just a great, sweet love story. Ruth. Oh, finally we get somebody good. Well, stop. Okay, Ruth is a great story, but stop, who is Ruth? She's a Moabitess. She's from the land of Moab. You know who Moab, where Moab came about? He came about from the incestuous relationship of Lot with his oldest daughter. That's where this whole people group came from. And in fact, if Naomi's oldest son would have been a man of honor, he would have never married her because God totally forbid that, didn't he? He, doesn't want, he didn't want his people marrying outside of their nationality, much less with somebody from Moab. You know what that tells me? There's salvation for people who are outcasts and on the outside. It tells me that, that there's hope for people who are the enemies of God. Isn't that what it says to you? I hope it says that to you, because every single one of us is an enemy of God. Now, now just keep going to verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, oh good, finally somebody really good in the line, right? King David. And David was the father of Solomon by, and he doesn't even say her name, the wife of Uriah. How many of you get together for family reunions and your kids will ask you, who's that person? Shh, don't talk about them. We'll talk, we'll talk later about them. You ever had that situation? I'm probably the guy, no, don't talk about him. Her name's not even mentioned. 
You know her name, don't you? Bathsheba. She's the one with whom David committed adultery, and, and it takes two people to commit adultery, does it not, church? So she commits adultery with David, and she becomes the mother of Solomon. In other words, the line of Jesus is full of people who absolutely have screwed up their lives. Do you find hope in that? I hope you do. All of these people. And let's just talk about David for a second. Let's talk about one man in this list. You know, David, the greatest king ever in all of Israel. Israel grew and expanded. He was a man of war. He was this great warrior king, and he did amazing things, like sleep with one of his top general's wives, and then lie about it, and cover it up. He could have been a politician right here in the U.S. today, right? David would fit right in. But he was the man after God's own heart, was he not? Not because of anything he did, but because of what God did in his heart. And so when you consider this, every single one of these people needed God's grace, did they not? Now, I don't know how many of them actually received his grace. Just because they're in the line of Christ doesn't mean that they're going to be in heaven. You understand that, don't you? But they all desperately needed God's grace. And, and for all of them, they all had access to that grace because of the one who came from them, Christ. None of them earned it. Rahab's not going to get to heaven and say this, okay, God, I, I lied and I saved those two spies, and in fact, the whole, your whole nation of Israel hung in my hands and I saved them. You've got to let me in. No, it's only by grace through faith that she's going to get into heaven. David's not going to get to the pearly gates and say this to God, greatest king in Israel, warrior king, did all this stuff. No. It's only because of the work of Christ that I get into heaven. And so, back to Philippians chapter 2. When you consider Christmas, it's more about what you don't see than what you see, isn't it? It's what you don't see even, I know I keep referring to this nativity scene, but it's true. It's what you don't see here. There's no cross here, is there? There's no cross here. It's what we don't see that's so important. And it's really easy to get swept up with, with all of the wonderful stuff that's about Christmas and all the traditions and all these things and, and, and to come to church and, and have the choir sing and last week have the bells play and sing familiar Christmas carols and do all these things that we do every year and totally miss the point. And the point is this. Almighty God stepped out of the throne room of heaven 
and he stepped onto earth so that he could save his people from their sins. You see, the incarnation is a picture of just how far God is willing to go, and aren't you glad? It's a picture of how far God is willing to go. And quite honestly, he has to go that far because we're that low. Christ has to lower himself that far just to get down to where we are. And too often, we, we act and we live like, hey man, I really got something going for me. I, I got something really happening with me. God, you're really lucky to have me as one of your children. Uh-uh. No. Christ had to lower himself to the lowest point to redeem every single one of us. And so, this Christmas, don't miss what you don't see here. Father, we're so thankful that in the person of Christ, God stepped into our world, and He came to be with us, not just, not just fighting for us, not just hoping the best for us, not just pulling for us, but He came to be with us. And we're thankful for the reality that not only did He just come to be with us then, but now in the form of the Holy Spirit, as the children of God, God is with us today. I pray that we wouldn't miss what we don't see in the Christmas story. I pray for those today that have not experienced that redemption of being freed from the curse of the law. May today be the day that they experience that freedom of having the curse of sin lifted off of them because of what Christ has done. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.